Good morning. I love Brandywine Valley Baptist Church. I thank God for our faith in Jesus, our love for people, especially those of the household of faith, and our hope in the coming kingdom of God. And I'm confident that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, between now and that glad day, we will not escape trials and tribulations. We live in a fallen world, and this world poses a question about God and evil. It goes like this. Why does a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? C.S. Lewis captured the hard emotion in that question in this little book called A Grief Observed, which he wrote about his wife, Joy, uh, who died of cancer after they had been married only a few years, pretty late in life. And I wanted you to hear this excerpt from his book. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. It is important and difficult to talk about why God allows good things to happen, allows bad things to happen to good people. And the reality is today you and I are in the deep end of the pool and we don't swim real well. So I... I need to communicate to you that I don't think about what we're doing today as an academic exercise. What we talk about today is the sometimes almost inexpressible suffering of people. And as a result, that's why I'm going to use two stories as we talk about why God allows bad things to happen to Good people. And before we do that, I'd like for us to stop and just ask God's help in this conversation. Lord God, you have taught us to obey everything you commanded by loving you and our neighbor. And we pray, Lord, that you would grant us grace to be devoted to you with all our heart especially in those times when it seems like you have disappeared from our life. 
and also united to others with pure affection when they too go through those times of just inexpressible difficulty. And we ask for your help in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Before we started today, I had a chance to meet Lori. Lori, I apologize for embarrassing you. Would you, would you also tell me your last name? Cunningham. Lori Cunningham. Now, suppose I go upstairs at the end of this session, and somebody comes up to me and says, Pastor Bo, do you know Lori Cunningham? Knowing another person is tricky business. If I know your name, do I know you? I know, I know the name of the mystery that's you. But several things have to happen if I'm going to explore the mystery behind the name. You have to give me permission to know you. You also need to be interesting enough and irritating enough to encourage further conversations and other experiences together, and we need time, lots of time. The day that I say I know you or begin to use you for my own purposes, the mystery goes into hiding. The person remains a stranger. Now, these studies this summer on apologetics offer some of the ways, God's ways, of being interesting enough and irritating enough to intrigue us into knowing him better. I hope they whet our appetite for the inexhaustible possibilities of knowing God. I hope also they give us a few firm footholds as we get to know him. We're going to need them as we talk about why a good God allows bad things to happen to good people. So let's start our exploration today with a story from late summer 2011. And if you don't mind, I'm going to read this story. Peter and Caroline's only child, PJ, was one year old. His face was fair, his skin unblemished. Blue eyes looked up unblinking like twin lakes in Kansas wheat. His hair was blonde and combed. It was always combed. I never saw PJ with disheveled hair, even in his hospital bed. Just before our pastoral staff meeting on Tuesday morning, Peter called me and said, they're going to remove life support from PJ. If you want to be here, you need to come now. When I got to the hospital room at the DuPont Hospital for Children, Peter said the doctors had a meeting with each other, and then they had a meeting with us, and they said there's nothing they can do for PJ. 
The machine is keeping him alive. It was up to us to decide how long we wanted that to go on. They left us, and we decided it was time. They will be in shortly to disconnect the monitors and turn off the ventilator. I asked, well, who stayed with PJ last night? And Caroline said, we we both stayed. Peter said, one of us has been here day and night ever since he was admitted two weeks ago. Sometimes my mom and dad would be here for the day, and Caroline's mom and dad would do the same when they were in town. And that was their vigil, night and day, one or both by his side. They sleep with him, beside him, and the slightest twitch in his little body wakens them. Families come and go, friends come and go, doctors come and go, nurses come and go, pastors come and go, people of unidentified responsibility come and go. But mom and dad stay and watch and worry and wonder, how will this end? I asked Caroline, how are you feeling right now? I'm tired, but I'm okay. And I got to tell you, she was as gentle as the child she held. How about you, Peter? I'm okay. It's hard to sleep here, but I slept enough. Peter kept a lot inside, at least in a public setting. He looked, he looked like a hard man. But I talked to him later, and I know he was just overwhelmed. No one in that room, and there were eight or ten of us in the room, felt much like talking. I reached out my hand, and I stroked PJ's cheek, and I held his hand. Would it be okay if I prayed? No one objected. It surprised me that some people said yes with something like eagerness in their voices. And I paused a few moments, seconds, before I prayed. And I said, Lord God, Almighty and Everlasting Father, you have brought us in safety to this new day. Thank you. Preserve us with your mighty power that we may not fall into sin, for we are easily tempted, or be overcome by adversity such as the one we are experiencing right now. And in all we do, direct us to the fulfilling of your purpose. Help us to see your purpose. It is very dark right now. PJ is your child. Receive him into heaven this day. And I stopped. I, I just couldn't talk for a second. And the emotion just silenced me. And I, with some traces of emotion, I, I made myself go on. And you know what it's like. My, my voice <laughs> sounded like I had something caught in my throat. And I said, comfort 
his mother and father as only you can comfort. Thank you for these loved ones who have provided such loving support through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. And the room was very quiet. There were tears in everyone's eyes. And and my tears made me miss PJ's nurse who had come in to the room and walked around and begun to disconnect the medical apparatus that was keeping him comfortable. And then the one that watched his vital signs with unblinking eyes. I watched her stow the cords. The ventilator still operated at full power, but PJ's little body had begun to outwit its mechanical master and to fail in spite of the steady flow of oxygen. The doctor who would turn it off now stood behind PJ, not very far from where I sat. I could see the numbers on the ventilator. Peter and Caroline allowed everyone to touch and to stroke PJ's quiet body. Some also gently touched each other. Some prayed quietly. Some wept more noticeably, but with dignity. A tenderness uncommon in the common course of human contact softened the inevitable as the unfeeling gauge registered the decrease in oxygen from 100 to 80 to 60. And then the compassionate doctor turned it off altogether. And still, little PJ's chest rose and fell in his valiant, involuntary effort to hold on to life. And then it stopped. The room grew quiet, except for tears and sobs and knowledge that an end had come. Then came a moment when the room became again as quiet and still as the child on the bed. Caroline moved first. She handed PJ's body to Peter and stood up, and it gave all the rest of us permission to breathe again and to move around. Peter gestured to his mom to ask if she wanted to hold PJ. She did. We all did. One by one, we took that little boy, no more peaceful in death, than he had been in life and cuddled him and spoke to him. I felt honored to be included in their circle of sorrow. The last person handed PJ back to Peter, and what happened next was unlike anything I have ever seen. Peter laid PJ's body on the bed and removed his blanket and all his clothing. I just watched The child lay on his back, naked on the bed. 
Peter walked over to the sink in the room, took a washcloth, dampened it, and walked back to the side of the bed nearest the window, and he began to wash PJ's body. He washed every square inch of it. He never spoke, but went about his task like the high priest of his family that he was. I still remember that man's tenderness as he bade farewell to his only son, stroke by deliberate stroke. No doubt it helped to give him closure, but his act transcended self-help. Like all priests, he acted on behalf of everyone else in the room, doing for them what they did not think to do or dare to do. The moment was holy. The room was holy. Peter laid PJ back on the bed, dressed and cuddled him, kissed him, and walked around the foot of the bed toward the door. Caroline kissed PJ one last time. They all filed out. Wordless. I gave Peter and Caroline a hug in the hallway and said I'd be in touch in a day or two about PJ's memorial service. Even in our sleep, memory, which cannot forget, falls drop by drop upon the heart until even in our despair, against our will, comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. Since the days of Abraham, God's people have been accumulating wisdom about God's relationship with evil and the pain it causes. Both natural evil, like PJ's disease, and moral evil, like the Holocaust. And for the next few minutes, I want us to just look at a little strip of the wisdom that has been accumulated. As, as you absorb this story I've just told you, what, what would you say is the most natural question parents in a condition like that would ask? Why? Of course, why? I think it's worthwhile making a distinction in the meanings of that question. When, when you go to the doc and you say, hey, doc, my stomach is killing me. What, what are you asking your doctor to do? First of all, fix it. <laughs> you know, tell me what it is if you can, but fix it. Now, when a parent or parents ask, why, why did my child have to die? What are they asking? They're asking why in the sense of what purpose does this serve? What is this for? I'll tell you, in PJ's case, it was 
agony to answer that question in either sense of the word. The physicians of the body could only say to those parents, we don't know, not yet, how to treat type 1 spinal muscular atrophy. But someday we will. The physicians of the soul could only ask in the identical, could say in the identical words, we don't know. Not yet. What purpose this may serve, but someday we will know. When people ask, why does a good God let bad things happen to good people? They're asking, what is, what is its purpose? What is it for? And how people finally answer that question will shape them permanently. And I say finally because it may be years before they come up with their answer. And when the answer comes, it may be at a moment in time that passes almost imperceptibly, like that moment when you fall asleep. The answers God's people have given to that question reflect wisdom that has been accumulated over the last 3,500 years. And once again, I think that a story is going to give us access to that wisdom better than anything else. This time, a story from the Bible. It's the story of Joseph, and if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me in the Bible or on your device or whatever you've got or in your vast memory, Genesis chapter 37. And I really hope you'll bring your Bible every week, but I can tell you in two weeks, when I'm responsible to stand here again, we're going to look at a cluster of really significant New Testament passages. And I hope that you'll have your Bible either in hand or on your device and be able to access it. Now, to give you a break from my interminable voice, I have asked some other people to help us with this story. And Daryl Freakin agreed to read first. And Daryl Thank you so much for breaking the ice and for being willing to do this. And I think this should be on. Testing, testing. Is it on? Okay. Yes. That's on, right? Okay. This is a story about Joseph. Now, Joseph, Jacob's son, was not a likable guy. He was a snitch. He was his father's favorite that always endears you to your brother, and he had 10 of them. And he was a dreamer and the hero of his own dreams. The book of Genesis plainly says three times that his 10 half-brothers hated him, hated him. Well, Jacob had sent Joseph to check on his 10 brothers again. Why not just send a sheep to check on the wolves? Well, they weren't where they were supposed to be, but somebody told him where to find them, and they saw him coming before he saw them. And Daryl picks up the action in chapter 37 and verse 18. But they saw him in the distance, 
and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. And verse 20 reveals the plot. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. They really hated those dreams, didn't they? Two brothers stand out in this episode. The firstborn, Reuben, did not want his brother to die, and he prevented it, verses 21 and 22. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. And that's what they did. They threw him in the cistern. Now, Reuben never tells us how he proposed to get his brother Joseph safely back to his father and explain to his father what they had done to him. You know Joseph would tell his father. And you know his father would believe him. Another brother, Judah, sided with Reuben, and he actually had a plan. However, his, his motives were far less honorable than Reuben's. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. And for 20 pieces of silver, the dirty deed was done. In verses 37, um, pardon me, 31 and 32 tell the outcome. Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it, examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. And, and where was God? Well, how soon do you want to know? <laughs> you say you want to know now. Well, of course you do. We want everything right now. Reality is not in a hurry. God is not in a hurry. And suppose our impatience causes us to miss how God, through change, accomplishes his unchangeable will. Thank you. You're welcome. Really appreciate that. You're welcome. Don Kugelberg is going to join me to continue the reading of the passage. And by the way, what do people in a hurry really want God to do? I mean, do they expect him to sprinkle fairy dust on Joseph and his brothers and make everything sweetness and light? You know, that, that would be the nice way to go about this. But you know, God honors human freedom. And we sow whatever we want, and then we reap what we sow. And God does not always prevent the long-term consequences of what we have done. Case in point. Down to the end of chapter 37, Don, would you start us with verse, is it 36? 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. It was just one more transaction in the human trafficking of the ancient world. And nobody saw God put his hand into the glove 
of history in order to bless his wayward children. But he was there. And now in chapter 39, if you're following, chapter 39, verses 2 through 4, Genesis shows us how God was there starting right in Potiphar's house. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. So Joseph's fortunes have taken a turn for the better. And in these three verses, two through four, the writer goes out of his way to say three times that this was God's doing. And would you read verse three again? Because it summarizes this. The Lord was with Joseph, and the Lord gave him success in everything he did. Yes. However, it didn't last. It did not last. More evil befell Joseph. At the end of verse 6, how, how does it describe Joseph? <laughs> now Joseph was well-built and handsome. Ooh. Well, one of the heads that that handsome face and figure turned was Potiphar's wife. Listen to verse 7. After a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. Now there, you have a thoroughly liberated woman. And in that world, Joseph was a fool to do what he did next. Chapter 39, verses 8 and 9. But he refused. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? He was loyal to Potiphar and faithful to God. Was he a fool? Well, Potiphar's wife tried repeatedly and unsuccessfully to seduce Joseph. And her last try was disastrous for Joseph. Verses 11 and 12. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by the cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. And verse 14 reports her treachery. She called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has brought us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And she repeated the lie to her husband in verse 20. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. For the second time, Joseph has fallen victim to somebody else's anger and deceit and for the second time, his world, his world fell apart. So where's God? Well, how soon do you want to know? Don, thank you very much. You're welcome. That's a tough section to read. Not only how soon would you like to know, but will we recognize God's hand when we see it? Carrie Nathan is going to help us as we read the next section that takes this story forward. Carrie, thank you for being here, and we appreciate your willingness to do this. Now, 
In prison, you never know what's going to happen. And two fellow prisoners having nightmares seemed like an unlikely intervention from on high. In verse 8 of chapter 40, if you're following along, the Pharaoh's imprisoned cupbearer and chief baker said this to Joseph. We both had dreams, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. He interpreted the cupbearer's dream to mean that he would be restored to his former position in the king's court. He interpreted the chief baker's dream to mean that he would be executed. Joseph hoped his interpretation would be his ticket out of prison. And in verse 14, this is what he said to the cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to the Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. And his his interpretation was spot on. Uh, The chief baker was hanged, and the um, chief cupbearer went back to the palace to do his butlering. Joseph had high hopes for an early release from prison. But verse 23 dashes those hopes. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. And look at the first, I'm sorry. sorry. (laughs) Look at the first six words of of verse 41 that, that talk about what happened. When two full years had passed. Two full years. That's the kind of disappointment that would turn people against God. It must have been a bitter moment for Joseph as his high hopes turned into some very low hopes and then turned into two more years in jail. And then God intervened again in a way that nobody would have guessed. Genesis chapter 41, dreams, you remember, got Joseph into trouble. Dreams are now about to get Joseph out of trouble. Verse 1, is it verse 1 through verse 4? Yeah, would you? Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the river bank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. I really think it was the bean burritos he had too near bedtime. (laughs) But but Pharaoh thought they had a a deeper meaning, and he went looking for somebody to tell him what the dreams meant. And now we have a a really fascinating passage that goes from Genesis 41, verse 12 through verse 16. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, A young Hebrew was in prison with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, 
but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Joseph's sufferings did not destroy his faith in God. They didn't hamper his ability to interpret dreams either. Verses 29 and 30. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. And then Joseph demonstrated some administrative wisdom by offering Pharaoh a plan to protect Egypt during the time of famine. And verse 43 shows us just how far Joseph came in a short time. Pharaoh had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and men shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Thank you very much. Thank you. Worked well. Now, the story could end there, and it would be a good story. But Genesis has other fish to fry. And Shannon Keeler is going to help me as we finish this abbreviated version of Joseph's story. Shannon, thank you very much for doing this. We're, we're moving toward the end of Genesis chapter 41. And in verse 57... Genesis introduces us to the setting for what comes next. And all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe in all the world. And among all those who came from starving Canaan, guess who? Joseph's ten half-brothers who had sold him to the Ishmaelites so many years before. And if you like irony, you will love chapter 42 and verse 6. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And it came to pass that Joseph's boyhood dreams were fulfilled in ways that nobody would ever have expected. Now we don't know how many years passed. We know it's been two in jail plus and probably more, but enough years had passed that Joseph had become unrecognizable to his brothers, and they present their their petition for grain in chapter 42, verse 8. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. So he was going to have a good time with them, with a purpose, and he accused them of being spies. They defended themselves by revealing far more probably than they should have. Verse 13. But they replied, Your servants were twelve brothers, the sons of one man, who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. Aren't those last words just delicious? And one is no more. And they don't know who they're talking to. Joseph put them in custody for three days, and at the end of three days, he put them to the test, verses 19 and 20. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. And the brothers did it. 
Simeon stayed, and sometime later they returned to Egypt with Benjamin. Genesis chapter 43, verse 30, tells what happens when Joseph and Benjamin see each other for the first time. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. All 11 brothers feast with Joseph. Benjamin, his full brother, inexplicably receives extra portions. The party ends. The next day they let out with more grain. They head back to Canaan with Simeon and Benjamin in tow. Mission accomplished. Except that Joseph had hidden his silver cup in Benjamin's sack. They had barely left the city when Egyptian authorities overtook them and accused them of stealing Joseph's silver cup. Of course, they all denied it and even rashly went on to say something that they really shouldn't have said. Chapter 44 of Genesis and verse 9 tells us what it was. If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die, and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. And so the search of the sacks begins. Thank you. By the way, was it Reuben? Was it Reuben's sack? <laughs> was it Simeon's? No. Was it Naphtali? Was it Dan? Asher? Issachar? It was Levi. What? Zebulon? Gad? Judah? Could it have been him? Could it have been Benjamin? Yes. 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 The brothers were crushed. They're brought back to Joseph. They don't deny the theft. And Judah shows true brokenness. If you look at chapter 44 and verse 33. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. That's the people of God acting like the people of God. And then Joseph could no longer control himself. He cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. That's chapter 45 and verse 1. And now we come to the point of all of this story. In chapter 45 and verse 7, Joseph interprets the years of his misery that his brothers had caused him. He says, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. That's the purpose for Joseph's years of suffering. Do you think saving Jacob's clan was worth saving? Well, to hear Joseph tell it, he thought so. And God thought so. 
And if you think for just a minute about who was saved, maybe you'll think so too, because Jacob became the father of those 12 sons. And from them came Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the little nobodies in the village of Nazareth, Joseph and Mary, and Mary's son, Jesus. When you look at it that way, Joseph suffered for us. Do you think that was worth it? Years later, in a conversation with his brothers, they were still not sure that he wasn't going to get vengeance on them. And he finally reassured them with these immortal words. We should put them in gold lettering where we can read them every day. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. That statement, you intended to harm me, is powerful. It preserves human freedom. It perverts human freedom. But it does not prevent divine freedom from overriding evil and making it serve God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. Victims of evil... Victims of evil come to believe that, or they don't. Either decision is an act of faith about what ultimately has the final word in human experience. Either random, violent evil, or the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has the ability to make good come out of evil. Whichever choice Victims of evil make. The agony they feel connects them with the agony of Christ. At the ninth hour, there was darkness over the whole land, and he cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And how did God answer that statement that good Friday afternoon? With silence. It is important and difficult for us to talk about, to think about why a good God would allow bad things to happen to good people. When the good order and reasonable expectations of your life crumble, because of bad health, bad circumstances, or bad people, and you ask God to stop your suffering or at least give you a reason why, his silence can rise up like a mountain. And this prayer and silence can go on for years. And along the way, at some point, barely noticeable, you reach a point where you say to yourself, my circumstances are not going to change, no matter how much I pray. 
And when people reach that conclusion, their convictions about the goodness of God may waver and may grow strong again and waver again and grow strong again and sometimes disappear altogether and maybe get strong again. The company we keep during these harrowing times is most important. Not because they're going to give us any clear answers, although sometimes they do, but because we have somebody in our life who is not going to abandon us. Offering, saying to a friend or a colleague who is living through some time of irrational suffering, hey, would, would, you, would you like to get a cup of coffee together? Maybe the most powerful, apologetic any of us can ever offer. In those moments, over coffee, at the right moment, and you'll know the right moment, you say to your friend, do you want to tell me what you've, what you've been living through? And then listen. Listen for all your worth. Weep together. Laugh together. You will laugh. And offer to pray. The God of Joseph and Jesus will be right there with you and your friend. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Two things. Over here on the book table, on the far end, there is a, an article from the current issue of Christianity Today, which Brainuine Valley has <clears throat> photocopied with permission. It's free to you. It, it is a sequel to what we've been talking about. And I think you may find it hard to put down. I hope you'll take one per household before you leave. And second, we have five minutes, and you can ask anything you want. <laughs> or we can stop. Thank you. You've been a great congregation as always. Why don't we pray and give God thanks and ask him to make this fruitful where it needs to be fruitful. Holy Father, please grant to us comfort after having listened to human stories that are hard to listen to stories that we may experience ourselves in ways that have marked us forever. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would so work in our souls as to turn what we've heard into something good as we make our way through this very uncertain world. And we pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you. Peace.